Well, uh, thank you, Rick. Great staff team here. Always feel very privileged to be part of what God's doing here. My name is Chris Lane. I'm the senior pastor. I've actually been away. You may have been coming for the last three weeks and suddenly you're looking at me and thinking, who's this guy? Well, I've been away for three weeks. Um, Fliss and I were up in the north of England teaching at a kind of family Bible camp, which was great to do. And then I had a, a bit of sickness, so I took some time off, but it's, uh, it's been good to be back. And, and this week, actually, talking about things that have been happening, uh, uh, I was interviewed by Premier Radio, which I think is on the dab dial, or I don't quite know where you find it, but anybody know where you find it? What? On the TV satellite thing. Okay, so it's even on the TV. Um, yeah, I was interviewed for a thing called the Leadership File, and that's going out at 2 o'clock this afternoon. So if you rush back and tell the rest of the family to sit still and listen very carefully, then uh, I'm on uh, for half an hour at uh, 2 o'clock, and then it'll go on their archive or whatever. So uh, it's been a kind of a very exciting, interesting time, and, but it's good to be back here. It's been good to be with you guys, my family, and I... I feel at home and I feel that we're, we're caught up in something here that is significant. So I'm very excited to be, be sharing with you this, this, morning, this afternoon, I should say. Okay, so we are teaching currently through a series called The Pursuit of Happiness. And uh, this is really drawn from Jesus' teaching in a quite well-known passage that has become known as the Sermon on the Mount. The passage we're actually looking at is in Matthew chapter 5, and actually elsewhere, but mainly Matthew 5, and it's become called the Beatitudes, and it's called that because Beatitude means blessing, and this little bit of teaching begins with Jesus saying, blessed are the so-and-so and so-and-so, and there's a list. And uh, we started the series by saying how you know, when one pursues happiness, hence the title of the series, the, the world, at least in the Western world, I should say, has a very clear idea what makes up for happiness, what the component parts might be. You know, health, wealth, and happiness, you know, a beautiful husband, a beautiful wife, a handsome husband, you know, the, the newest of cars, the biggest of houses, the best of jobs, you know, kids all doing well. You know, we have this sort of, this image of, of what might make up, may not work for you, maybe just a bigger train set might make you happy, but, but for most of us, you know, what the, 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 the culture that we're part of presents is this whole business of consuming and, and attaining and pushing upwards and onwards and all the rest of it. And uh, yet Jesus comes with this teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, and, and what he does is actually he turns that whole thing on the head. The, the problem with the, the teaching of, of, of the, the way the world is presenting itself is that not everyone is going to win. We're not going to all win. We're not all going to be happy, healthy. We're not all going to be, you know, get the biggest car and the biggest house and the best job and the best girl and the best guy. It's just not going to work for all of us. In fact, for those who attain that, it would be interesting what the percentage was, but very few. And those who do attain it, are they really happy? But Jesus comes in, he turns the whole thing upside down. He says that, you know, if you're pursuing happiness, well then pursue the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is made up of people like this. 
Blessed are they that. And the thing about Jesus' teaching is that it's attainable. Everyone is included. Everybody gets to play. You can be, as I think I said in my first sermon, you you can be a humble potter in Kerala, southern India, and you can be a winner in the kingdom of God. Because it's not about the size of your wallet or your education or your good looks. It's actually a completely different way of doing life. And Jesus unpacks this in this passage we call the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Let me read through to where we've got up to and then we'll deal with today's subject. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning at the first verse, and I'll just read it out. I can't remember whether it's going to come up on the screen, but I'm just going to read it out anyway. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And we'll stop there. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Matthew 5, 9. That's what we're going to look at today. And rather than tell you personal homey stories, and I love telling personal homey stories, and they may, may get one or two slipped in there, I'm actually going to tell you a story out of the scripture about a lesser known hero, a hero of the faith. I'm going to tell you Abigail's story. Abigail may be new to you. Well, you may have just read her this last week, Stranger Things Have Happened. But I'm going to read to you, I'm going to tell you, not read it, I'm going to tell you Abigail's story. And hopefully, what we will see in her story is someone who is a consummate peacemaker in the kind of way that Jesus is referring to and teaching. So Abigail, the scripture tells us, and if you want to read up on this this coming week and kind of reflect upon it, you'll find her story in 1 Samuel chapter 25. That's in what we call the Old Testament of the Bible. And incidentally, if you haven't got a Bible, and I don't mean you'd like a new one, but if you haven't got a Bible, we would love to give you one. Just ask at the welcome desk and we'll, we'll give you that just as a freebie. But in 1 Samuel chapter 25, we hear this story. And the main character is Abigail. The Bible says she was a beautiful and intelligent woman, like so many of you here, especially my wife. Just cranking up the brownie points here. A beautiful and intelligent woman. Unfortunately, she was married to someone, I guess, that many in the world would admire. She was married to Nabal. And Nabal, actually the Hebrew sort of plays with it a bit, the name, and and, and calls him Fool. So quite whether that was his name or whether he just stuck with the nickname, and the nickname was Fool, but no, no matter. Nabal was a brutish man, but he was incredibly successful. He had all the toys, he had all the cars, he had all the camels, he had all the goats, he had all the houses, he had all the golf clubs, he had all the right membership, 
but he was a brutish, coarse, and callous man. And bless him if he didn't have the woman as well on her arm. He had the, the beautiful and intelligent trophy wife, but it didn't make him any more agreeable. Now, the other character in this story is David. Now, many of you will know of King David. David was one of the, the great heroes, a huge hero of the Old Testament. He was an extraordinary guy, started as a shepherd, but, but was, was appointed by God to become king of Israel. Not the first king of Israel, but the second, some would say the third king of Israel. But, but he was, became a king of Israel and a very successful one very passionate man, man of great integrity, a man of great weakness. That's why I think we relate to him so easily and so readily because we recognize a little bit of ourselves in him. But he was also a man who was open to correction and he was passionate about the kingdom of God, passionate about God's people. Well, this story takes place before he's come into his kingship. He's, he's been promised the kingship, but at the moment he's a bit of an outlaw to be frank. He's out there in the wilderness, of which there was plenty in those days, with about four to 500 uh, warriors and, and, and the rest, their families and all the rest of it. And during the summer season, he had come across Nabal's servants out there with the flocks. But there was this great hospitality ethos in those days, in a way that we've lost in the West. In the Middle East to this day and beyond, there is this great culture of hospitality to the, to the extent that you would give your children's food to the stranger rather than show disrespect and, and not show hospitality. It's an extraordinary value that is alive and well today still. Well, that was much the ethos there. And what David did was during that summer season why Nabal's servants and all the flocks were out there in the wilderness, he looked after them. He, he kind of kept an eye out for them. He didn't exploit them or anything like that. In fact, one of the servants said to Abigail at a later point in the story, he said, you know, when we were out in the wilderness and David's men were there, they were always there for us. They were like a wall around us, a wall of protection. That was the hospitality, the generosity, if you like, that David's men showed Nabal's servants and people. Anyway, harvest time comes, great time of celebration the world over. Still got vestiges of that here, I guess. But harvest time came and, and David sent a few of his young men up to Nabal's camp and, and said, you know, if you've got a few spare sheep and a, you know, a flagon of wine or two, that would be lovely because we want a party too. But as you know, we don't have any flocks. We're out there in the desert. And Nabal sends them away with a fleeing area. Nabal acts according to type. He, he's brutish. He's rude. He's aggressive. Basically, he kicks them out the camp. Well, not only does he cause, you know, uh, uh, you know, not only does he sort of uh, reject them, but he causes a great offense. And the great offense was, was basically not just that Nabal was rude and callous and brutish, but he offended one of the kind of bedrock values of this culture. You always showed hospitality. 
But he sends these guys away, basically kicking them up the derriere, figuratively speaking, if not actually, saying, get out of here, you, you wilderness dogs. Why should I bother with you? Well, anyway, the young men come back to David, and David shows a bit of his passion. David jumps to his feet, and he says to his men, he says, put your swords on, and he puts his own sword on. And they set off to take care of business. You know what I mean? They set off towards Nabal's camp. In fact, David goes so far as to utter an oath. He says, may God judge me ever so severely if one living creature is left alive by dusk to night in Nabal's camp. David's blood is up. He's been personally offended. He put himself out during the summer. He didn't lift a finger. He protected Nabal's property and people. And now Nabal sends his people back with, with this curse and offends not, not at a personal level but as a, at a, a cultural level too. Got it? Simple story. Anyway, a few hours later, Abigail is about her business, this beautiful and intelligent woman. And one of the servants comes running in, all hot and bothered, covered in dust and sweat, and falls at his, his mistress's feet and says, Mistress, our master Nabal has done a terrible thing. And basically, he relates the story. And then he says, and now David has, has armed up and he's coming into town to take care of business, and we all know what that means. Abigail goes white. This is the first she's heard of it. But she's an intelligent and beautiful woman. And she says, right, get the servants together. And she calls the servants together, and she says, okay, I want you to go to the stores, and I want you to get 25 wineskins of this, and I want you to get you know, four, 14 sacks of that, and does this great big sort of shopping list of, of, of resources and says take 12 you know, oxen and camels and donkeys and goodness knows what and load them all up and send them off to David straight away. I'm coming along as soon as I'm ready. So the servants rush around. Nabal knows nothing about this. It's all behind his back. So this caravan of provision begins to make its way out to, towards David. And Abigail readies herself and then she rushes out too. She takes a bit of a shortcut. As she does so, she comes into this ravine, and who should be coming down the ravine towards her but none other than David and his fighting men, all tooled up, ready to take care of business. She comes to David, and she falls at his feet. She shows tremendous courage. Takes courage to be a peacemaker. I want to tell you about Abigail's courage. She falls at David's feet, and 1 Samuel 25, verse 24 says, she says, my Lord, my Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Excuse me? Abigail says to David, she falls at David's feet in the face of a clearly delineated offense to man, beast, God, and the culture. 
But she falls at David's feet and says, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Wow. Wow. Not, please don't kill me. My husband's a jerk. He's an idiot. He's that way. I'll help you. (laughs) I've been wanting to be shot of him forever. No excuses, no save me and my, we didn't know anything about it. No, it wasn't us, we didn't know. No, honestly, if only we'd known, we am sorry. None of that kind of whinging, whining that is so much a part of our culture. It wasn't my fault, don't blame me. That we know. Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Now, not surprisingly, and I think if I'd been in David's shoes, I would have found myself in much the same place. He's completely taken aback by this appeal of all the things that one might have expected her to say. He wasn't ready for that one. Huh? She realizes that she's caught him unawares and by surprise and... So she presses in on the advantage and she pleads, she intercedes, if you like, kind of like a prayer word there. And at one point she says this, my Lord, you will come into your kingdom, that is well known. One day you will be king of all that you see. This great nation of Israel is already being given to you by the Lord. But Lord God, may it not be that one morning you wake up And you find that you have on your conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed. Wow. I said she was a bright, intelligent, beautiful woman. She puts forward a case. She projects into the future. David, how will it be? One morning you'll get up king of all your your dreams and visions come to pass and you'll be shaving away. You'll be looking at yourself in the mirror and suddenly you'll see a murderer staring back at you. How will that be? Let it not be, David, that you bear upon your conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed. Well, David is completely wowed. And the men are impressed too. So he says, well, put like that. Get off your feet. Come on, stand up, stand up. She gets to her feet. And he says, well, thank you. (sighs) Listen, you have my word. Whatever your husband's like, you have my word. My men nor I will not raise one finger against your household. You have my word. She says, please take these gifts. Thank you. And they part company. But Dave is impressed. Now, there is a little postscript to this story. (laughs) 
She goes back to the camp and Nabal is carousing. He's, he's got a night in with the lads, all his buddies. And they're all in the snooker room and they're bragging about their successes and their cars and their golf clubs and other blokish stuff. And he's well into his cups. He's well bevied. Nabal just goes to... Uh, he goes on through the night, but Abigail goes to bed. Following morning at breakfast, when Nabal's a little worse for wear, Abigail says, by the way, I need to tell you, I took these stores and that's this, that and the other, and I took them to David last night. And he goes, you did what? And he's absolutely apoplectic. He actually has a stroke. A serious stroke. You can imagine his red face and his veins sticking out of his neck. He is absolutely outraged that she should do such a thing. But he's struck down with a stroke. A few days later, he dies. This is all by way of postscript. David gets to hear that the Lord God, because they see it as divine judgment, has struck Nabal down, dead. And so she, he then sends a message to Abigail. And we hear now of Abigail's reward. And Abigail's reward is this, that David makes her his queen. That beautiful and intelligent woman Abigail, the peacemaker, consummate peacemaker. The peacemaker's reward. Let's just think about that for a moment. The peacemaker's reward. Abigail became a queen, one of many, it has to be said, but that was the custom too. But what are the rewards that we find in the Beatitudes? We've been teaching through this and there is a, as I've said, and I've read to you already, there's a description of, of the characteristics, the values, if you like, of the, the, those who make up the kingdom of God. But what are, the, what are those rewards which we find in, in that passage? Matthew chapter 5, I won't read it all again, but the first one's reward is, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second is, they will be comforted. The third is, they will inherit the earth. The third, the fourth rather, is that they will be filled. Uh, then they will be shown mercy. Then they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Wow. Sons of God. Well, there's not too many that get that accolade. In fact, the one that comes to my mind, not surprisingly, is Jesus himself, Son of God. Why is it that the peacemakers get this highest of accolades? Sons of God. Sons of God. Well, because Abigail's actions, that story has it at its very core, the essence of what it is to be a peacemaker. And of course, in Jesus, 
the Son of God, we also know him as the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Peace. We celebrate the Prince of Peace at Christmas. And I want to read a little passage, and if you've got a Bible, turn with us to Colossians chapter 1. I've got two main points to make, and then I'm done. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 19, says this, For God the Father was pleased to have all his fullness, everything that he was and is, all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace, being a peacemaker, through his blood shed on the cross. You see, when Abigail met David in that ravine, she fell at his feet and said, let the blame fall on me. When faced with the offense that your sin and mine causes God, Jesus falls on his face and says, let the blame rest on me. Only for Jesus, he didn't end up somebody's queen. There was an interim step, and this is often the fate of the peacemaker. Jesus actually paid the price for that substitution. Jesus died on the cross, and more than just dying a criminal's death, Jesus dying on that cross made peace. He took, in reality, not sort of spiritually or, you know, whatever, he, in reality, died the death that you and I deserve. Went to hell. But then God rose him, raised him from the dead. You see, sometimes being a peacemaker means that you have to lay down your life. It's the price of peace. It comes very dear. You know, we have many South Africans in our uh, congregation, and I'm a great admirer of dear old Nelson Mandela, still with us now. I've read a number of things and seen a number of documentaries and films, as I'm sure you have, how he spent all those years, he was a young, hot-headed activist, ended up on Robbins Island in jail, and then when he came out, an old man, it has to be said, there were many in his nation who were ready to take up arms. Now we've got them back-footed. Now was the moment. Now we can take power. Now we can get our revenge. Now, 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 now. And he wasn't having anything of it. He said, it stops here. We're gonna build a nation, black and white. Colored too. It stops here. He took the offense a lifetime. He didn't see his kids grow up. He didn't have birthday parties for the little ones. He had grandchildren he never even met. But it stopped with him. You see, being a peacemaker sometimes costs us very dear. And when we work for peace, when we, when, we let it, when we let the offense stop with us, suddenly we are elevated 
into a very rarefied atmosphere and company, that of the Son of God. And that is why Father is pleased to call those who are peacemakers at great cost sons of God. Now, if you've been at the first service, thus far you would have heard pretty much what I've just said. And I've got a final point. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to finish the sermon because we had a baptism going on. Wonderful. But I promised that if they listened to the podcast, they would get the last point. And that is this. The last point is is actually to just look full on just for a moment the whole problem of peacemaking. You see, the reality is that if somebody was to come to me, a hypothetical case, but suppose somebody came to me and said, Chris, um, we won't go into the details, but we think that if we were to take you out to the Middle East now, there's something about your personality and something about your character, and we can introduce you to one or two people. We think you could actually make a difference out there. Well, of course, if that was to happen, I'd be hugely flattered, and Fliss and I would pray about it, and I would probably go if I thought that I could do something, really, seriously, that would work for peace in the Middle East or anywhere else you care to mention, Afghanistan or whatever. And the truth of the matter is that if, if you were in my shoes, and of course I'm not in that place, but if you were in my shoes, if somebody came to you completely out of the blue, you know, if your local MP and one or two other worthies turned up and said, Look, we, we think you could make a difference, would, would, you, would you spend six weeks helping us in this hot spot because we think there's something about you? that could make a difference. Do you know, I I dare say that we would, all of us, we'd talk to our employers and they would give us leaves of absence and there'd be a hearts advertiser, journalist round and, you know, radio three counties would do it and we would all go and do it. I'd have no doubt about that. The trouble is, the man next door. The trouble is our neighbor The trouble is that infuriating fellow across the road who keeps parking his car across your drive. You see, if we were called to go to the Middle East, we could work for something, but we have a problem, actually, with our work colleagues, with our friends at college, with our family. Oh, don't get me started about families. Being at peace. In fact, if truth were known, we we spend time fantasizing about little revengeful plots. I'll go into his garden and I'll lop every one of those stupid gnomes' heads off. (laughs) The dead of night. See what he thinks of that. I will hire a chainsaw and I will top the sick... I will take the top six foot off those Cypress Lalandis next door. So help me God. If his cat comes into my garden once more. You see, we'd all go to Palestine and Israel and work for peace. But there's a problem with peace. 
Instead of being peacemakers, we plot revenge. Fantasize about what we should have said or what we will say next time or so on and so forth. You know, and in that, we don't recognize a root issue. The root issue is this. And Jesus spoke about it in Luke 7, and if you want to do some homework, read through this story. Jesus tells a story on more than one occasion, actually, not just in Luke 7, of someone who was in debt to a wealthy, powerful man couldn't pay, went to see the wealthy, powerful man, begged for, for more time, and the wealthy, powerful man was moved and wrote the debt off, said, oh, go on, get out of here. Goes out of the street, walking down the street, sees what? somebody who owes him 15 quid, grabs him by the throat and gives him a darn good shaking. Says, pay me my money, you delete, delete, delete. Jesus' teaching in this was that we're generous when we've received generosity. We will love much when we're aware that we've been forgiven much. I don't know about you, but I like to think of myself, it's for others to say, as a pretty generous guy. But I'm always at my most generous when I've got a bit of a wad in my back pocket. Can't seem to hang on to the money. I'm sort of use it for various things. When I've got a lot, I'm generous. I'm a nice person to have around. But when I'm back-footed and, and feeling insecure, oh, yeah, that's it, the insecurity thing. When I'm feeling threatened by people, I find it very difficult to be generous, to be magnanimous, to be affable, to be any of the other positive things that we might aspire to be. Jesus says, you will find forgiveness in your heart for others. You, in other words, will be a peacemaker when you really deeply and profoundly Come to terms with just how much you have been forgiven. Jesus said, you know, those who've been forgiven a little, well, there's very little love in their hearts. Not a lot of grace. They tend to be rather critical, rather judgmental, rather, we even use the word today, pharisaical. You see, if you aspire to be a peacemaker, perhaps the first step for you is this, that you get on your face, you fall in the dust like Abigail. You admit your guilt and you say to the Lord, Lord, let the blame fall on me. I am guilty as charged. You will then find yourself in the company of one who takes his hand underneath your chin and tenderly raises you up and calls you son, daughter. You see, when we know our sin, when we stop making excuses and blame shifting, suddenly we find ourselves forgiven, ennobled, called sons and daughters. 
We're in credit. And in that place, we look at the world through a whole different lens. We look at the world in a spirit of generosity, compassion for people's weaknesses and shortcomings. We find ourselves peacemakers, willing to lay down our lives that others might know that peace which we have discovered. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Oh, I wish. Let me pray. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Lord, if truth were known, we are riddled with insecurity, criticism, judgment, fears, anxieties. We plot revenge. We have imaginary rows and conversations. Oh, God, forgive us. Lord, may we know that we are indeed poor in spirit. May we fall before you, seeking your forgiveness, only to have you then raise us up as a son and a daughter. And then, out of the forgiveness that we find, the love that is shown us, may we be worthy of being called sons of God. And everyone said, Amen. Just before I say the final blessing, and thank you for your attentiveness, um, as always before this service, our prayer team felt that the Lord was saying that uh, there may be a number of people who like prayer, and you might like prayer, you might like want a blessing, or want to just quickly share with a stranger who knows how to pray something you're wrestling with, the neighborhood dispute you're caught up in, in which case, go to my right, your left, as I pray the blessing. But, but also, as well as that, there may be some physical problem you're facing. And the prayer team felt that there may, might be somebody here who's really struggling at this time with, with eczema. Somebody who's got a fracture of the jaw. It's maybe an old injury that is still playing them up. Somebody with a fear of spiders that is really getting out of hand. Somebody struggling with eating disorders, and somebody with a deformed or damaged large toe. If that's you, if you can relate to any of that in any way, shape, or form, may I suggest you don't just drive off into the afternoon thinking, well, that was interesting. Get some prayer. Go to my right, your left, and one of the team will pray for you. Now, let's all stand, shall we? And I'll ask and pray God's blessing. So... May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious to us. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us his peace. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week, I hope.